Our podcast deals with distressing topics. It may not be suitable for everyone. If you need to talk to someone, support is available. Call Lifeline on 131114 anytime for confidential telephone crisis support. This podcast is about my search for answers. We will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. We started putting children behind barbed wire. All persons are free and equal in dignity and rights. Women and children first. Episode 1. Free and Equal in Dignity and Rights. The Jurists. Hello, I'm Alex Roussos and I am your host and you are listening to Women and Children First. I guess you could say I'm an average Australian. I'm middle-aged and middle-class and like almost half of all Australians, my parents were born overseas. They migrated to Australia in the 1950s. Almost 10 years ago, I decided that I wanted a change in career. I went and studied law and majored in public policy. It was during this study that I learnt about the law and about our rights and obligations as citizens. I may be naive, but I've always thought of Australia as the land of the fair go, a land of mateship, a place that favours the underdog and sticks up for the downtrodden. Well, the more I found out about our policies in relation to asylum, the more I had difficulty reconciling this image with the reality. Look, I'm not some idealist advocating for an unrealistic, utopian society. But at the same time, I think we as Australians need to know the whole story when it comes to our asylum seeker policies. We've got the right to know what our government's doing on our behalf. It's one of our fundamental constitutional rights, the right to political communication. The freedom to examine and review these policies is vital to our democratic society. I'd like to know what's going on, and I'd like to know whether we can justify it or whether there's an alternative approach. Now, why have I named this podcast Women and Children First? The name alludes to a couple of things. Firstly, Many of the early successful cases involved women and children. And that might be because people are more sympathetic to their plight. The phrase women and children first is also fitting because it's generally used in an emergency. The way we treat asylum seekers, particularly those languishing in offshore detention, is nothing short of an emergency. And lastly, I'd like the name to inspire hope. The hope that women and children are the first to escape the indignity and uncertainty of life in offshore detention. And I would hope that everyone left behind will follow. Over the past few months, I've been on a journey to find these answers. And along the way, I've spoken with a pretty diverse bunch of experts, lawyers, politicians, jurists, advocates and academics. I'm under no illusions. This issue is massive and there are many avenues that can be explored. I want to take you along with me on this search for answers. In this episode, we're going to be exploring Australia's history when it comes to human rights. It's probably a good idea that we define some of the terms before we kick off. And I spoke with Dr Daniel Geselbash, Associate Professor at Macquarie Law School, where he runs the Social Justice Clinic, which gives students hands-on experience working mostly in the refugee space, and he's also the Special Counsel at the National Justice Project, where he helps with strategic litigation and is the only migration agent on staff. He's also a board member of Refugee Advice and Casework Services, the biggest free migration advice provider in Australia. I asked Daniel to define some of the common terms we'll be using when discussing asylum seekers and refugees. I think it's important to distinguish between the 
particularly when we talk about the term refugee between its term in a legal sense, as a term of art under international law, and also the way you use it in common parlance. So I think when people talk about refugees, they generally refer to anyone who's fleeing any sort of harm, uh, where as, as a term of art under international law and um, also domestic law, it actually only applies to a very small subset of people who are, who are fleeing harm. And asylum seeker refers to, in common language, we use asylum seeker and refugee interchangeably for people, so basically fleeing any sort of harm. Uh, but in a legal sense, uh, when we use the term asylum seeker, it's someone who's seeking to be recognized uh, as a refugee but hasn't had their claim determined yet, uh, as opposed to a refugee who's been determined, um, as, who's gone through the process and has been found to be a refugee. So it's clear the terms refugee and asylum seeker are used interchangeably in everyday language. But in a legal sense, an asylum seeker is a person whose refugee status is as yet undetermined. Now, language is a very powerful thing, and often language can be used to present an issue in a way that almost forces the listener to interpret it in a particular way. For example, when politicians use a term like tax relief, it tells us that tax is something negative, something to be avoided. In the same way, we hear terms like Q-jumpers, illegals and economic refugees being used to influence how we feel about people seeking asylum. Dr. Gesselbash, is there a right way to seek asylum? In terms of the, the, the right and wrong way of seeking protection or seeking asylum, that sort of language or that sort of thinking or that sort of rhetoric is quite new. I think it's important to note that the Refugee Convention, which is the main international instrument in this area, uh, is specifically designed to protect people who move on their own volition and seek protection elsewhere. Uh, and those are the ones that we see today, particularly in Australia, but now increasingly other countries being identified as uh, the, you know, somehow undeserving of protection or queue jumpers. But that's, and th no, that they're doing what the system was designed to protect. And uh, so, I mean, in Australia, you know, we've come down very hard on people who try and access protection of their own volition. And uh, the government rhetoric is that we have a very generous resettlement program and uh, that basically involves people waiting in their home countries or in transit countries until they're given a visa to come to Australia. Uh, and uh, that's the queue. That's the right way to seek protection. And I mean, I guess there's a couple of issues with that. Uh, the first being that resettlement has absolutely nothing to do with the Refugee Convention. So the Refugee Convention, your, our international obligations only kick in when someone reaches our territory or we come into contact with them in a way where we exercise jurisdiction. Um, so say at sea when we intercept someone, we have no legal obligations to people in camps in other countries or people still in their home countries. And it's also in crisis, like the international resettlement regime, there's just not nearly enough places. There never were nearly enough places to go around. And recent years have seen those very small numbers slashed. You know, the US was the biggest provider of resettlement spots and they've almost they had down from 100,000, more than 100,000, uh, to close to zero now. The numbers just don't stack up. There's the UNHCR has identified, I think, close to 2 million people in need of immediate resettlement worldwide. I think the number of spots we had hovering below 50,000. There's no queue. Uh, it's more akin to a lottery, but not even a lottery. It's really a rigged lottery because states, the reason they like the resettlement program is that they have free reign uh, to pick and choose characteristics of the refugees they want to take. So, so there's two things. One is there's a triage system. So people that are most in need, generally women and children, particularly women without male guardians or male protectors who are really in precarious situations. But then beyond that, there was a while there in any I think Thursday morning, you're tuning to, to Peter Dutton and Ray Hadley, and he'd be very openly boasting about how he uh, has reduced the number of uh, Muslims coming through our resettlement program and geared our program towards uh, Christians. So uh, there's that, and that's why states like it, because they get that level of discretion to pick and choose who they want. In, in the immigration context, discretion is often a, a euphemism for discrimination. Thanks, Dr. Gezelbash. Racism is a factor when it comes to human rights. Understanding this is something I'd like to explore in this episode. A good place to start is to look to the past. Let's begin with Australia's history when it comes to human rights. I spoke with Mr Geoffrey Robertson QC. Mr Robertson was born in Sydney and graduated from the University of Sydney with a Bachelor of Arts in 1966 and a Bachelor of Laws with first class honours in 1970. He later went on to win a Rhodes Scholarship and study at the University of Oxford. 
Mr Robertson is a human rights advocate who's defended Salman Rushdie, Mike Tyson and Julian Assange. He was president of the United Nations Special Court in Sierra Leone. He's a distinguished juror on the UN's Internal Justice Council and one of my favourite authors, having penned, amongst other books, Crimes Against Humanity, The Tyrannicide Brief and The Case of the Pope. I asked Mr Robertson to provide some background on our founding fathers. I'm afraid all but one of our founding fathers, the people who produced our Constitution, thought like Pauline Hanson. They were racists. What they particularly wanted to do was to kick out the Kanakas from Queensland, send them back to the islands in the Pacific, and to stop the Chinese. They hated the Chinese. They wanted them out of Australia. They didn't want them to come in, which was why they spent so much time fashioning what was called the White Australia Policy, which was really our first law. The only guy who was a far-sighted human rights lawyer was the Tasmanian Attorney General, of all things, Andrew Inglis Clark. He was a remarkable man for his time. He'd been to America. He'd seen the American Constitution. He wanted the Australian Constitution to be something like Jefferson's Constitution. Uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That was what he wanted. And, of course, he was a pain in the neck to the other racist founding fathers, people like Deacon and uh, the, the state premiers of the time. And when they went to approve a final draft of the Constitution, they went on board a motor yacht in Sydney Harbour called the Lucinda. And uh, they left Andrew Inglis Clark on the shore so he didn't, wouldn't disturb the, the completely uh, the lack of human rights in the Australian Constitution. So that was, we, we ended up with a Constitution that actually uh, excluded Aborigines from counting as Australians. I, when I was a young law student, I read the Constitution debates, and my God, they're disgusting the way they, they talked of Aboriginals as though they were kangaroos threatening the crops. They were subhuman. They were sub-Australian. This, this is the mentality of our founding fathers, uh, with one exception. It didn't have to be. We really find very little by way of human rights in the Australian Constitution, driven by uh, racism. We, uh, we still name our parks, our streets, after these racist founding fathers go to Canberra, there are statues of, uh, of, of Deacon and all the white Australia policy people. But uh, there it is, that, that is lamentably our foundation document and gives, of course, the government all the power that it needs to keep people out of Australia for whatever reason. Geoffrey Robertson, explaining the constitutional factors that set the foundation for the legal ability to exclude people from Australia based on their race. I spoke with a man who's been recognised as an Australian living treasure by the National Trust, former High Court Justice Mr Michael Kirby. Mr Kirby continues the story of Australia's chequered relationship with human rights, starting at a point in time just after World War One, In the Versailles Treaty in 1919, which had ended the First World War, um, Japan was the power. It was then an ally of Australia and Great Britain and the, Uni and, uh, the United States at the end of the First World War, uh, insisted that uh, the uh, League of Nations should be founded on a principle of no racism. The Japanese greatly objected to the racist laws that uh, had been applied against Japanese nationals, including by uh, Australia, both in colonial times and 
in uh, the times when the Federation had been established. Uh, and they objected to Australia and they objected to Australia's white Australia policy. Uh, but that was given short shrift by the Australian uh, delegate to the um, uh, Versailles Treaty, uh, who was William Morris Hughes, the Prime Minister of Australia, who was a strong supporter of the white Australia policy. And he insisted that the League of Nations should have an exclusion uh, from internal affairs of the member countries uh, that would protect Australia's white Australia policy. One of the principles of politics in Australia, which have always been fought hard, was the common ground of all the politicians upholding the right of the Australian nation to be based uh, on the same ethnicity as the founders uh, and excluding people of different race and colour. All of this has a local and recent resonance, of course, with Black Lives Matter. But these things lie deep in the human psyche. Hobgoblins and hatreds are down there. And they were present in Versailles in the First World War, at the end of the First World War. And they were present in San Francisco at the end of the Second World War. Uh, the Second World War began, as we all know, in September 19. Uh, 39. And uh, when it began, uh, it began over uh, territorial disputes, substantially, of Germany's continued claim for territory and its then claim for territory in Poland. Uh, and at that position, there wasn't much discussion about human rights. Um, and there wasn't much talk about the Nazi policies of the Hitler regime uh, against uh, minorities and particularly the Jewish minority. Uh, and so it was uh, at the start something of a conventional territorial war. However, uh, by the time that the United States entered the war as a result of the attack by Japan on Pearl Harbor, it became necessary uh, in the United States for President F.D. Roosevelt to um, find uh, essentially a moral principle, uh, a ground which uh, he could secure the um, energy of the people of the United States. And he therefore, in an address to Congress, referred to uh, four great freedoms and those four freedoms then led to a, a meeting of Prime Minister Churchill and President Roosevelt uh, in Canadian waters and the proclamation of the Atlantic Charter. And the Atlantic Charter repeated the idea of the four freedoms and that was then referred to the meeting for the beginning of the work of drafting the uh, proposed charter of the United Nations. They tried to get agreement, but uh, at San Francisco uh, and before San Francisco, the representative of the Republic of China uh, uh, opposed the draft on the basis that there should be uh, included in the charter a universal commitment to no racism. And that created a problem for the United States, which then still had segregation in the southern states of the United States. Uh, and that segregation uh, was um, a difficulty for the Democratic uh, president, um, Roosevelt first and Truman subsequently, to get the majority that was necessary to be elected president of the United States. So that was a difficulty for the Americans. But it was also a difficulty for Australia. Our representative was Dr. Evatt. Dr. Herbert Veer Evatt had been a justice of the High Court of Australia in the 1930s. He was a very brilliant man. And he was a man who was uh, personally committed to universal human rights. But uh, his problem was that in Australia, 
even in 1945, at the end of the Second World War, white Australia was a common principle of the political parties in Australia. And therefore, Evatt had to move with care. Uh, Evatt um, and the United Kingdom suggested that there should be an exclusion from uh, any Bill of Rights in the Charter of the United Nations from the internal affairs of countries. Um, that was very difficult because the very point of human rights is to attach to human beings, and human beings are everywhere. They're not just divided into uh, particular countries. Uh, and so the attempt was made by the Republic of China uh, to insist upon a no racial discrimination provision. Uh, this, in turn, led to the discussions of this at Dumbarton Oaks. That led to the delay in the adoption of the human rights provisions. A general statement of human rights went into the Charter, but the details of the human rights that they were referring to was not uh, then inserted in the Charter. It was referred to a committee of experts. That committee was chaired by Eleanor Roosevelt. That was itself an unusual thing. These were meetings that were totally meetings of men. But Eleanor Roosevelt, a woman, was um, uh, elected the chair of the committee that would draft the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, a very great woman and a great champion of human rights. And so she and her committee, including the Chinese delegate and delegates from Australia and France, uh, worked on the draft of what became the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. That Universal Declaration was adopted uh, on the 10th of December 1948. So the Charter was uh, in um, uh, late uh, 1945, after the end of the Second World War, the, the Universal Declaration was at the end of 1948. And in those few years, the delegates, um, basically led by Eleanor Roosevelt uh, and uh, by a great French jurist, René Cassin, and inspired by the contributions of the Chinese expert and by other experts, settled on the language uh, of the Universal Declaration. And as it happened, Dr. Evatt, who was very busy in all of these things, had been elected the third president of the General Assembly. When Evatt died, he only had one thing on his gravestone. It wasn't that he'd been a justice of the High Court of Australia. It wasn't that he'd been Australia's foreign minister and attorney general. It wasn't any of his other great achievements. It was that he'd been president of the General Assembly of the United Nations. And so Evatt was in the chair. Uh, the United Nations building hadn't then been built in New York. Uh, and the uh, consequence was that they were meeting in Paris. And so this meeting uh, on the 10th of December 1948 adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. There were no contrary votes. It was, there were two abstentions. One abstention was from Saudi Arabia. They didn't like the notion that women were to be given rights and therefore they, they had great discomfiture with from this, partly from the point of view of their understanding of religious texts. Uh, but the other uh, abstainer was South Africa. South Africa had uh, the beginnings of the laws that ultimately became the laws of apartheid, uh, and therefore it abstained. It didn't vote against, Saudi Arabia didn't vote against, it was adopted, as we used to say, NEMCON, no one against it. And the Universal Declaration has a, a marvellous um, collection of the statements of universal human rights, but it's basically summed up in the first article. All persons are free and equal 
in dignity and rights. It makes me emotional <laughs> just to put this in context, to understand the dispute, to understand the difficulties politically for the Americans and for the Australians, for the Saudi Arabians, for the South Africans and for many other people who had difficulties they didn't like to admit. But it was stated, all persons are free and equal in dignity and rights. And that became the core of the Universal Declaration. And Dr. Evert said, this will be a Magna Carta for all mankind, drawing on the English legal tradition. It would be a Magna Carta for everybody everywhere. So it has proved it's the most translated document uh, in the world. It's been translated into every language. It's not divided by religions or other bases of moral belief. It is a great uh, set of principles. And the main drafter, the person who actually put pen to paper, as you did in those days before the computer, was uh, uh, an academic lawyer named John Humphrey. He was a professor of law at McGill University in Quebec in Canada. And later I was to get to know him because I was serving on the International Commission of Jurists and John Humphrey was the Canadian Commissioner, I was the Australian Commissioner. So I am now giving you this history. This is a, a history with a link to the people who are actually involved. Uh, it's a link to my own early life because in 1949, along with all students in public schools in Australia, uh, I don't know what happened in private schools, but I know all public schools students got a copy of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Dr. Everett arranged that that should be available to all students and we were taught about it. And my teacher, Mr. Gorringe, said, unless we can accept and respect these principles, particularly after the explosion of the atomic bombs that ended the Second World War, we will just go on killing each other. And that remains a lesson from my teacher, uh, Mr. Gorringe, that is still true today. That unless we abide by the principles of universal human rights, uh, there's a flaw in the human nature. And we will not respect that all persons are free and equal in dignity and rights. We'll just go on killing each other. That's why this is a very important conversation, a very important principle for all people, for all Australians, because we were a, an opponent of some of the principles. Uh, but uh, it's particularly important for young Australians and young lawyers, young people to understand this principle and how it came about in the United Nations uh, 75 years ago. In the run-up to the Second World War, the international community became very concerned about the rumours that were leaking out of Germany concerning the discrimination against uh, particular groups uh, on the basis of their race or religion. Uh, those groups included most essentially the Jewish people. And even before the war had begun, the Kristallnacht, the uh, attack on Jewish property uh, and on Jewish lives had shocked people around the world. And the consequence of that was that a big meeting was summoned to take place in Avion in France with a view to working out a solution that could relieve uh, Germany of its unwanted Jewish minority. They were about 
one or two percent of the population of Germany and uh, thereby move them to other countries who would accept them. That conference in Avion was not successful in working out an international scheme and the result of that was that uh, Germany first proposed the solution of expelling the Jewish people in Germany to Madagascar. But when that uh, fell through, the uh, German regime simply invented other solutions to remove Jewish people from the Third Reich to uh, transplant them in Poland and other nearby countries and eventually in what became the final solution to kill them. And one of the great forces that was at work at the end of the Second World War was the force that was let loose by uh, the, the photographs, the films, the newsreels of the Allied uh, military and leaders going to the concentration camps uh, after the uh, Second World War. And that galvanised the international community into... Uh, working on a, an international convention for the protection of refugees so that never again would we simply turn away from protecting people who were being stigmatised on uh, defined grounds. The result of that was the adoption of the Refugees Convention, of which Australia is a party, and the adoption also of... Uh, the New York Protocol to that convention. A protocol, an extension of the convention, was adopted in New York in 1951, which extended the Refugee Convention to uh, all continents, so long as you could establish that the person who was claiming to be a refugee was a person who, by reason of a well-founded fear of persecution, on uh, defined grounds of race, religion, culture, political belief, was being persecuted and would be persecuted if they were returned to the country of their nationality. And so that became the Refugees Convention. And the reason for adopting it was the uh, shocking disclosures after the Second World War of what goes wrong when people are not protected uh, from uh, the situations that are defined in the Refugee Convention. And in Australia, we uh, joined the original uh, Refugees Convention. We joined the protocol, the New York Protocol. We have generally been a compliant country until relatively recently. And then, uh, as a result, again, of racial feelings that lie very deeply in the Australian psyche, right back to the beginning of white settlement in Australia, our political parties on both sides of the aisle have adopted policies which are really impossible to reconcile with the language of the Refugee Convention and Protocol. They say that if a person is coming at Australia, and particularly on boats, there's something about the imagery of persons coming to Australia on boats. That imagery also disturbed the Aboriginal people when the original white settlers arrived on boats. They said, go away. And that is essentially what Australia has said. But there is no exception in the Refugees Convention and Protocol to uh, the mode of transport or to people arriving on boats. And, and the question remains, are they a person who, on the grounds that are specified in the Refugees Convention, have a well-founded fear of persecution if they're put on a boat or put on a plane and sent home to their country of nationality? If they are... Australia has legal obligations which it has accepted uh, to give them, uh, to process them, to consider their claim, and if they're found to have a well-founded fear of persecution, to give them asylum, to give them protection, 
uh, and that is our duty in international law. And unfortunately, our parliament, with no bill of rights or other provision to correct or stimulate it, uh, has um, enacted laws that uh, carve out an exception. And that exception is serious at all times, but it's especially serious at the moment because of the uh, coronavirus, the COVID-19 virus, which... Uh, has meant that people who are sent to offshore establishments uh, may not get the protections that they would and should have received in Australia and uh, children and others will uh, be denied access to our medical um, health care system even though they are living lawfully in Australia on a visa system pending determination of their case. So this is a serious matter, and it's a matter in respect of which Australia is not complying with that basic rule. All persons are born free and equal in dignity and rights. And all persons who come to Australia uh, who claim refugee status are entitled to be processed, considered, determined, uh, but in fact they are automatically detained and now increasingly they are automatically transferred to offshore uh, establishments and detention and in those uh, detention facilities they suffer many disadvantages and often are kept there for many years which is contrary to the idea and terms of the Refugees Convention and Protocol. It's important to note that the Refugee Convention predates the more modern notion of human rights that has emerged since the 1960s. It sits aside from subsequent treaties that came into force and are framed in a very different way. They have different oversight mechanisms such as governing bodies that audit compliance with treaties and ensure accountability and subsequent treaties also have the ability for people to make complaints when their rights have been violated. But you don't find any of these features in the earlier Refugee Convention. We're going to continue our exploration of Australia's relationship with human rights. I asked Geoffrey Robertson what impact our treatment of asylum seekers and refugees has on our international reputation and legitimacy when it comes to working with other countries in our region to formulate a regional response. We divert any refugee boats to Christmas Island or Nauru or to these offshore places. We pretend that uh, Nauru is not Australian territory. Of course it is in all but name. We bought it as a, as a dumping ground for refugees. We placed them for years indefinitely in this intolerable uh, situation where they can't work. Uh, they're in effect in an island prison. And uh, the treatment courts have held amounts to torture. And we've had to pay 53 million a couple of years ago when the, the uh, decree that it was torture was made. And this is, how does it look? Australia is deliberately inflicting torture on people who are or could be entitled to live by international law. We have prison guards, in effect. I think the fact that we have this dark area of our policy does impact on Australia's influence without doubt. And if we didn't have it, if we accepted refugees or at least sorted out uh, people claiming refugee status and sent back those who were just economic immigrants, I have no doubt that our influence would be greater. But it's not because of this one problem. The problem with our indigenous people is another, uh, but otherwise we have a good human rights record and would have more influence if we were, we were able to show 
that we didn't have this tragic flaw, which is our tendency to be cruel to refugees. Why do Australians have this cruel streak? That is not that other peoples of democratic countries do not have. And that may be, I think, an aspect of our history, an aspect of our failure to make human rights uh, a living and meaningful part of our education and our life. We have the extraordinary turnaround of Angela Merkel, who the, the head of the very country who tried to exterminate the Jews once, uh, turning around and leading acceptance of refugees who were very much economic migrants, but they, uh, and were too many of them, really, for, for Europe, but still welcoming them. So there you have um, comparative tenderness of other countries, of other peoples. I discussed with Dr. Geselbash earlier in this episode the legality of seeking asylum and how it's been framed in Australia using terms like illegals, which gives the impression that it's not legal to seek asylum. What is the way forward? How can we correct this mistaken perspective about the legality of seeking asylum? Why is it that Australians do not realise that those who are seeking asylum are entitled to seek asylum? Why don't they understand that these people are not criminals and should not be tortured and treated, put in prison and not allowed to work and so on? Well, look, I think it comes back to education and history. And we are a country which began at Federation with a commitment to racism. We committed ourselves to keep the blacks, the tinted, the off-white out of this country. And that's a terrible heritage. Now, was it reversed when we committed to human rights after the Second World War? Well, the problem was that other countries which committed showed that commitment by having a Bill of Rights. And in the 60s, 70s, 80s, most countries in the world, most democratic countries, had in their own constitutions a Bill of Rights, a Charter of Rights. And their children were educated into an understanding of what that meant. You had in America, of course, the, the great constitution, the great amendments, the all, all men are created equal right there in the country. You had the statute of liberty, statute of liberty. Um, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free. You know, this is a commitment to taking refugees, and I think America can, Americans can understand from their school days what an important commitment, that uh, how important that commitment has been to their growth as a nation. I don't remember anything of that sort from my schooling, and we don't have a charter, we don't have anything to inspire an understanding of human rights. We have nothing to set against this old historical fear of the foreigner. And uh, so I'm inclined to see it in those terms. And one of the reasons that I was part of the movement for an Australian Bill of Rights was to try to have education in schools about what human rights mean. You know, you begin with the gas chambers uh, and you explain how the world decided to consign that kind of cruelty to, to history. And part of the story is acknowledging the right of persecuted peoples to find home elsewhere since they were being treated so barbarically in their own place. 
Mr Robertson mentions the idea of an Australian Bill of Rights. And it is true that we're one of the last Western democratic nations with no Bill of Rights. It seems like it would be quite an important instrument for our country. I asked Mr Michael Kirby about his thoughts on whether there's a need for an Australian Bill of Rights. When I was at law school um, a long while ago, we were taught um, that lesser people need bills of rights. People who have gone through a revolution like the Americans or people in dependent colonies and people of different races and cultures, they need a bill of rights. We don't need it in Australia because we have a democratic parliament and we've always, virtually always had a democratic parliament, even in colonial times, not long after the British established the colonies in Australia, they set up um, councils to advise the governor and then subsequently in New South Wales in 1856, they set up an elected parliament. So the argument was you don't need a Bill of Rights because parliament will always correct fundamental breaches of human rights, anything that breaches the dignity and rights will be fixed up. If, if, there, if problems emerge, leave it to Parliament. And there are still many people in Australia who assert that fact. You don't need it. Uh, you could never um, uh, enumerate all of the rights of human beings. Therefore, you shouldn't try and uh, rights um, do not need to be fixed up in courts, they need to be fixed up in Parliament. And so that was the argument. <clears throat> Unfortunately, uh, that argument works reasonably well in relation to majorities, because if uh, a government doesn't respect the rights of a majority, then they'll make that known and they will get rid of the government and they will politically ensure that they get their rights. But the basic problem is that human rights don't just belong to majorities, they belong to all people. And therefore, uh, the problem that exists in the parliamentary solution is that sometimes parliaments do not correct the fundamental rights of minorities. This has been shown in Australia really from the beginning of settlement in Australia. They didn't respect the fundamental rights of the indigenous people. They didn't respect their land rights. They didn't respect their culture and their dignity. They didn't respect the rights of women. They didn't respect the equality of women. Now, women are not a minority. They're actually the majority, but they were disrespected and at the time of Federation, only two states of Australia, Western Australia and South Australia, permitted women to vote. New Zealand had decided in that way in the 1890s. They were the first. It's a pretty good country, you know, New Zealand. They often get there before we do. But the uh, Australians uh, ambled along and we got it pretty soon, but women were disrespected and the law was often very unequal to women. As well as that, the law disrespected a minority that I knew, gays. The gays were not only disrespected, they were criminalised and they were liable to be locked up and uh, it disrespected uh, people on the basis of their race. This was the white Australia policy. And that was very popular. It was so popular that Mr. Mr. William Morris Hughes, our Prime Minister, made a tremendous fuss and completely disrupted the uh, Versailles Treaty negotiations for the establishment of the League of Nations, insisting that Australia should be allowed to have its racial exclusiveness. So these are the major answers to the suggestion that Parliament will fix it up. Parliament doesn't fix it up. You need uh, instruments 
such as a statement, a charter or bill of rights, and you need uh, institutions such as uh, commissions and courts to give enforcement where Parliament has failed. That's why Australia now is, I think, the only um, uh, modern democratic uh, Western country that doesn't have a, a charter or statement of rights. Uh, there are statutes uh, expressing rights in uh, Victoria, uh, in Queensland and in the Australian Capital Territory, but in other parts of Australia uh, there is no uh, charter of rights uh, and proposals that one should be drafted have been rejected by governments of both major political persuasions, the coalition has opposed it and the Labor government of Kevin Rudd uh, said, well, that may be done one day, but not just yet. So this is where we stand. We are one of the few countries in the world and probably the only Western uh, developed country in the world that doesn't have a Bill of Rights or it's a statement or charter of rights. So we've covered a fair bit today. We've discussed the constitutional influences that remain to this day, how we've sought to protect our interests from a perceived threat of foreigners and used legislative measures built upon the bedrock of our constitution. We've learnt about the nuance between the meaning of the term asylum seeker and refugee and how they apply in both general language and legal terminology. We heard about why the terms queue jumpers and illegals are totally misplaced. We've also heard about the pride we can take in Australia's part in the creation of the modern international human rights framework. We explored the arguments for and against an Australian Bill of Rights. Thank you to our guests, Dr Daniel Geselbash, Mr Michael Kirby and Mr Geoffrey Robertson. Thanks to the National Justice Project for supporting the production of this podcast. If you would like to know more about the work of the National Justice Project, please visit their website, justice.org.au. In coming episodes, we'll be talking with a range of stakeholders to unpack the various issues related to our asylum seeker policy. In our next episode, we'll speak with two experienced barristers who've been involved in some of the most formative asylum seeker and refugee cases. Women and Children First is an Integra co-production in association with the National Justice Project. Produced and mixed by Alex and Gal Roussos. Artwork by Kerry Hardy from Black Sheep Studio. Original music by Tim Hall and Alex Roussos. Visit the Women and Children First Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. WACF Podcast.